Go ahead and turn your Bibles, though, to the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2. You know, it's, it's funny with, you know, flipping our Bibles to a book of the Bible. I, you know, it doesn't matter you know, how old I am. It doesn't matter how many sermons I've sat through. It doesn't matter, you know, Bible college training or seminary training, whatever it is. If I'm trying to find a book of the Bible, I'm still going to go back to that song I learned when I was a kid to try to find, especially the Minor Prophets, uh, every single time. It's amazing uh, how our brains work in that way. Uh, but Habakkuk chapter 2 is, is where we'll, we'll be this morning. And uh, as, as you're turning there, also just a reminder, uh, last week we had, we had begun you know, d- digging into this book, this, this minor prophet, and uh, just thinking through just what was going on, the landscape there in Jerusalem and in, in, in Judah, how uh, Habakkuk was witnessing all this evil all around him among his own people, injustices that were being done, uh, poor uh, rulership uh, from the king. Uh, even, again, even leading to violence. And Habakkuk sees all this. He cries out to God. And the Lord responds to him. And God actually responds to him in such a way where he makes it obvious that as much as Habakkuk cares about these injustices, God actually even cares more so. As he's going to deal with it in such a heavy way. As he says that he's going to bring this nation, Babylon, the Chaldeans, going to bring them to judge his people, a, a nation that is wicked and, and even more so filled with violence. Habakkuk sees how unfair this is. You know, how can you bring a nation more wicked than us to judge us? That is unfair. And as Habakkuk makes his complaints, uh, we left last week with Habakkuk standing on the wall, just watching and waiting, how will God respond concerning my complaint? And what we have in, in chapter 2 is we see God's response. And again, it might not be what Habakkuk expected. It might not be what any of us would expect in such a situation. But the Lord indeed responds to Habakkuk's heart in the middle of this in words that are good uh, for us also to hear. Uh, so would you please stand to uh, hear God's word, the word of the Lord spoken to us from Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll start in verse, tw- uh, in verse 2 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? With scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. 
Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his, daughter, his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. O oh, Lord of hosts, God, you are far greater than we can possibly even imagine. The knowledge of your glory one day will fill the entire earth. Lord, as we see you in your word this morning, God, I pray your glory would be, would be made known here. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, hearts and minds that are willing and responsive to your word. God, we are a people who are in need of your spirit to change us, to mold us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, you would do that work this morning. Grow us in faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, years ago, during my early years in college, um, there was a summer where a friend and I, we found out that we had some free time, and we decided with that free time, we were going to go do some stupid things. Um, what we eventually decided we were going to do is we said we wanted to go uh, skydiving, was, was one of our, our main goals that we wanted to have for this, this free time that we had. And so we made this trip, we did some camping, we did all kinds of uh, fun things, but, it, but the, the highlight of it was we went to Ocean City, Maryland uh, to go skydiving. And the, the whole experience, I mean, it was, it's not for everyone, uh, but I mean, but it was phenomenal. Uh, when, I mean, just some of the, uh, the, the rushes that we had while we were out there, um, just even leading up to, uh, to jumping from a plane. Uh, it's amazing, all the different things that have to be going on in your mind with this. You like to think that it's, oh, a great measure of boldness. No, it's not boldness. It's stupidity. Um, it's definitely that, um, you know, it's just kind of denying the, the reality of some consequences that could really happen. Uh, all of those are, are kind of in the mix uh, when doing this, uh, all for this, this rush. 
And just thinking of the measure of faith that was needed to do this. I mean, initially just even going up to wherever the altitude was in a plane that was not like a plane I'd ever been on before. It was small. It did not feel very safe. And just a few of us just kind of bundled up there inside this, this plane. And as we're going up, uh, even remember uh, the, the moment where, you know, before we jump off the plane, we, they actually had us kind of like shimmy off to the side of the wing. And so we're actually just kind of on the wing of the plane as we're flying. And just kind of looking down, you're like, man, this is it. There's no turning back now. And so just the, the trust that was needed for that. And then ultimately, I was banking my life on this thin piece of material that was going to have me softly drop onto the earth and not much more quickly. Um, so just that, that measure of faith that, uh, that I needed to exercise for this, for me to actually go out onto the plane and to be able to do this. But there was one piece of that experience which was actually very helpful for me. And it's that apparently the first few times that you go skydiving, you have to go tandem skydiving. You can't just go out on your own. That is, you're actually attached to somebody else. And somebody who has done this many more times than I have. And not only was I attached to someone who had the experience of, of, of doing this and had many successful jumps, but our parachute, the, the, this guy, I don't remember what his name was, but this guy, he actually had to be the one to, you know, to roll it, to prepare the parachute, you know, to put it where it belonged in the, in the backpack situation, you know, have the harnesses. He had to prepare all that. And that gave me great comfort because I'm like, if this guy is not doing his job, we're both going down. So he's going to have an extra measure of carefulness, of carefulness, of caution. He's going to, you know, are there any holes in the, in the, in the parachute? Is there, you know, good material? All of those different things. I had more confidence in knowing that his life was also at stake uh, in my even jumping out of this airplane. You think of all that faith that was exercised that day. The reality is when we're looking here at the book of Habakkuk, and we're, 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 you may have noticed it there in verse 4 of, of chapter 2. This, this highlight of, of faith, and faith in the middle of all kinds of serious consequences could be abound, could be everywhere, including death, as a very real prospect. It's actually something that they indeed had already seen in the middle of this, and God is calling them in the middle of all that, in the middle of the injustice, in the middle of all these things, he's calling them to trust him. The righteous will live by faith. And that's what we're going we're gonna to see here over the course of all these verses, these, these 19 verses here, that because the Lord, he, in fact, he does see, and he will judge his enemies. So let us then live by faith. Trust him in the midst of that. That's the first thing we'll notice, that, that faith is need our way of life. Faith is the, uh, the pattern, the, the foundation, the uh, the way in which we can, in fact, live. Look there, again, our text in verse 2. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's response to Habakkuk's complaint is taken so seriously. He tells him, look, take the time, and I want you to write down what I'm going to say to you with this. Not only this, but I mean, think of how confusing a lot of visions are. Just even the next book in Zechariah, 
uh, well, well, in two books in, in Zechariah, three books, Zechariah. Again, I need to do the song in my head. I didn't do it. Um, that there are some crazy visions that, that, are, that are going on there, which seem so complicated. You think of the book of Revelation. There's dragons. There's beasts. There's all kinds of things. And he's saying here, there's this vision. Make it plain. Make this so obvious to understand. It is not to be in some complicated, apocalyptic vision, but clear words for God's people to live by. There's not, I believe with, with, with these words, these instructions that God has given to Habakkuk, I believe even today, as this has been written down, there's not a person in this room that God wants to leave here this morning not knowing what it means to live in light of injustices going on around us. In spite of evil seeming to be winning, in the midst of frustration because there is more wickedness than righteousness everywhere we turn, not only outside, but perhaps even feels that way on the inside. Says, make it plain. Make it clear. Let them read and see. Inscribe it on tablets. Think of the, the Ten Commandments. Same place that they were written on, on tablets, signifying this is going to be enduring in nature. Let generation after generation know what it is like, because each generation will struggle. From the time of Jehoiakim to Herod to Nero and on and on to our day. Not just on global or national scales either. This as pertaining our very experience, our very life, the injustices which we ourselves may be facing. Habakkuk is reminded that God has not forgotten, but has an appointed, set-aside time where God will indeed restore his people. There is a time where Babylon will surround Jerusalem, lay siege upon them, causing God's people to suffer from starvation and many other horrible things. There's an appointed time when the temple would be destroyed and would be lying in rubble on the ground, not one brick placed upon another. The Ark of the Covenant, gone. The instruments of worship, gone. There's an appointed time when the people of God would be taken away to a foreign and godless country by a people less righteous than they, where they would live in frustration and isolation as a foreigner. Yet God has appointed a time which hastens to the end. Literally, you say it yearns for the end. It pants for the end. An appointed time where God will right each wrong. Where he judges those who have acted violently towards God's people. He has more to say about this upcoming, uh, this, this judgment in these upcoming verses. But it is a vision of victory from God, which God's people are called to wait patiently for. Living by faith requires so much patience. We are blinded to a timeline 
that we have no way of knowing. When uh, I was in seminary, I had a, a professor, a professor I'd love dearly, but man, he would take his time grading stuff. And so, so much so that it would actually be a semester, or a, yeah, semester, two semesters went by, and I still would not know my grade for my previous class. All the while, I had to sign up for new classes, not knowing how I did on that previous one. And it was frustrating. And in the midst of, of all that, I'm, 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 that, what would stir up inside of me was not patiently waiting. It was oftentimes frustration. It was oftentimes, like, what, what's going on? Shaking my fist, kind of an attitude that would get harder and harder and harder. How much more, I'm feeling that way over a grade, a grade. How much more if people in our lives who are abusive to us, toxic relationships, when we are living with cancer or chronic pain, and God is in saying, trust me. His appointed time for justice may not be today. It may not be this year. It may not be in your lifetime. God may be calling you to a posture of patience and waiting. But it is not because God needs to gather his things and formulate some kind of new game plan. He's calling us to that, to wait on him, to trust in him because of who he is. The call to faith, it's there in the second half of verse 4. It says that the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the summary of the life that the Lord is calling Habakkuk to live, one of faith. You know, hundreds of years actually before Habakkuk, there was a pagan man who lived among the Chaldeans in the city of Ur. There was nothing about him that set him apart in righteousness or importance. However, the Lord called this man and made a promise to him that from his lineage, from his line, would come one who would defeat sin, who would defeat death. That through him the whole world would be blessed. That, that this man would actually even possess this tract of land in Canaan. And he heard this promise from God. Even though he did not currently possess any land. And he had no children. Though he and his wife were aged in years. He heard the promise. And he believed God. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, that it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith lays a hold. This was Abraham, by the way. Uh, faith lays a hold of something outside of you. It has no value in and of itself, but is merely the means, it is the vehicle by which we can possess that which is not ours. It then becomes ours. Abraham's faith did not mean he was righteous. It grasped the righteousness of God. His faithfulness to his promises. His power to dispel any obstacle. 
Abraham believed God and there was a transaction that was made where Abraham had previously held only sin as an idol worshiper and as a sinner. He now was seen in the courts of heaven as righteous because he believed the promise of God. And it is what is offered to each and every one of us. That we can lay a hold of the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, by faith. That by trusting in his work on the cross, in his perfect life, in his death, which he did not deserve to die, but I did. And in the empty tomb, showing that he had conquered death. And laying a hold of that, and trusting that that is sufficient for me, and even with the depraved nature that I have. It is sufficient. It has forgiven me of my sins. By faith, that righteousness of Christ is now mine. It is offered to each of us through Christ. John Calvin, he put it this way, this faith. He says, it is that faith which strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us. The words of Habakkuk allude to this transaction, that there is this relationship between faith being exercised and righteousness. The Apostle Paul actually picks up these words from Habakkuk uh, to show us this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul saying that it is by faith that we can be made righteous before God. However, faith is not only the means by which we lay a hold of this, uh, what Martin Luther called, alien righteousness, this foreign righteousness. It is the foundation from which and out of which we live daily. It is out of that that we live. It is out of being made a new creation in Christ through faith that we then live our lives out of faith especially in the midst of trial and tribulation. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews, this is one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament here, Habakkuk 2.4. The author of Hebrews picks it up as well. He says this in chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Almost seems like specifically dealing with the exact situation Habakkuk is going through. He says, Listen to these words, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. But you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, 
which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Bringing in another verse there as well. It says in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It is a steadfast faith that God's people are called to live. The same Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness is author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 11. He says that, that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. He says this in Hebrews 11, verse 13. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. How much land did Abraham possess when he died? God promised him all that land. How much did he have? He had a burial plot for his wife. All the land he owned. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. To live by faith is to live as a stranger and an exile on this earth. It is to believe that the promises of God are greater than not only the wickedness and the grip on this world by Satan, but that it is greater than the temptations of this world. It is greater than pursuing fame. It is greater than pursuing respect and status. It is greater than wealth and ease and comfort. It is greater than earthly security. It is greater than the affection and approval of even my own family. To live by faith is to keep sight of the promise which awaits those who trust in the Lord. To live by faith is to live in a way where even if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have an eternal home in heaven. To live by faith is to see your neighbor in light of eternity, not merely the present. 
To live by faith is to live not ignorant or glib of the, the chaos and the struggle, you know, too heavily minded to be, too, uh, to be any earthly good, but to patiently await the timing of the Lord, knowing he will not delay. To live by faith is contrary to the puffed up and the upright. It is not like wine as a traitor, he says there, and filled with arrogance and greed. To live by faith is to live with gratitude. The wicked will have their day, devouring nations by their brutality, which she characterizes the present age until the time of Jesus' return. But those who have believed shall continue to live by faith. In the early 1800s, there was a great missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson who served in Burma, Myanmar, whatever it's called now. Um, Judson, so, uh, Eastern Asia. Uh, Judson, he was eventually imprisoned for his faith, for his missionary work there. And this is, again, early 1800s, prison conditions, Eastern Asia. It was a trial unlike I think any of us could, could imagine. As he was lying there in this foul jail with 32 pounds of chains on his ankles, his feet being bound to a bamboo pole, a fellow prisoner said, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen? He had with a apparent sneer on his face. Judson's instant reply was, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. Living by faith, not by sight. The promise which Habakkuk is perhaps most pointedly looking toward is that promise of God's final victory. These wrongs will be made right. And God gives us this, uh, he, give, he gives Habakkuk this, this snapshot of Babylon's future. And the future of all those who are opponents of the Lord. In verse 6, just, just, just notice how this even begins. The shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? That there is going to be those who will oppose Babylon even including the God's people led by, by God himself that will taunt against him with scoffing and riddles. Now, taunting seems so bizarre, doesn't it? I mean, it's a 15-yard penalty in football. It is, you know, talking smack. It is talking down to your opponent. It seems to be a position of arrogance, Right? It happens on every online video game platform. It happens during every sporting event that is meant to flaunt your prowess and to humble your opponent. I, when I was in high school, I wanted to taunt a fellow athlete. Uh, there was a, this, uh, this other uh, guy that I knew from high school. He was two years older than me. He played basketball. It was his first year trying out for track, even though he was super athletic. He was very fast. I didn't run track, uh, but I was 
fast. I played other sports where I was fast. And I taunted this individual. His name is Daryl. I taunted him to say that I could, as he started out track, I could beat you in a race easily. I could beat you in a, in a 200-meter race. He's like, all right, like, let's do this. Let's race. I, and we were talking all day. We said something in the hallways after school. I went to baseball practice. He went to track practice. And before any of them started, we were going to go to the track, and we were going to run a 200, and we were going to see who was faster. But we were talking all day. All day we were talking. Well, we ran this 200, and let's just say by the very end, Daryl was actually running backwards and still beating me by a good five yards or so. I would like to say Daryl went on to a D1 scholarship for track. <laughs> but I, w I could taunt just fine, but I could not cash in. Seems like it is so beneath God to embarrass the proud before the world. Our God promises, though, he will vindicate, excuse me, vindicate his people. They that suffered in righteousness, God will make these things right. And will do so publicly. Even those who have suffered publicly. He will shame the wicked. Babylon's shame shall be as extensive, not even more so, than its conquests. The irony here, though, is that Israel was actually warned in Deuteronomy 28 <laughs> that they were going to become a taunt to the nations. They disobeyed God's commandments. And while they suffered a great deal, even of taunting from Babylon and others, God is saying he is reserving a greatest taunt from him to his enemies. There are these five woes you see here, try to emphasize in our reading. Uh, this, this word for woe, we, we, we see it throughout Scripture. It usually it, it, uh, describes a, a word of, of judgment on someone. There's something bad going to happen to them, again, here with, with God's judgment upon them. But what's interesting is actually this is not the normal word for woe, which it still carries it. There's actually a, some translations don't have the word woe. They have the word ha. It's a word of mockery where there's judgment, but it's really thick with taunting. These words of taunt are given for a variety of reasons. Plundering others, acquiring security and safety at the expense of others, taking advantage of others, and putting their trust not in the sovereign ruler of the nations, but in dead man-made things. God brings them an appropriate judgment for each one. What's perhaps most amazing about these words is that it is this nation that God is judging. This nation that is filled with so much sin, storing up so much judgment for itself, that God still chooses to use them as his instrument to discipline his people. He uses this nation that he will mock and taunt He's not ignorant about who they are. He knows them better than Habakkuk does. God is capable and able and willing to use the most vile of people and means in order to accomplish his perfect will. 
Also, don't forget who this is being written to. Even these words of taunting, it's not being written to the Chaldeans. It's written to who? To God's people, to Judah. These words, certainly they would serve as a warning to them, to us. To see God's anger kindled towards such actions. Yet also as a word of comfort. God has not turned a blind eye toward the wicked. He knows their deeds. Nothing is hidden before him. This is true of Babylon. It is true of our own trials also. God is not blind. He knows, he sees, and he awaits its appointed time. Of these five, the one that is in the the middle, and perhaps our attention is most drawn toward, best represents the entire catalog of woes here, concerns the building of a of a foundation on blood in verses 12 through 14. Look there again with me. It says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Babylon was building an empire founded upon taking advantage of others, upon violence, upon pride and arrogance. It was the foundation. Their cities were then built upon it. It filled the marketplace. It lined the city streets. It provided a city and power and rule and safety and security. Oh, how they sought and strived would amount to quite an amount, including some hanging gardens, no less. What was the final result? Fire. You labor merely for fire. Fire which destroys. Fire which brings to nothing. I can have our full seven-foot old Christmas tree looking large and beautiful but come a few weeks or months after Christmas once a flame is lit there's nothing there for this few seconds of awesome flame which is great but how we strive after such trivial temporary stupid things I saw some uh, study not too long ago on the amount of bullying which takes place concerning if you make a group chat and texting uh, turn green with an Android instead of keeping it blue with Apple. What great eternal significance that holds. While we build up our piles of rubbish to be burned. We build our cities upon clout and Instagram and Zillow and on and on just to have it burned. Yet praise God for his promises. With all that will be toiled after resulting in nothing, 
with all the cities built upon bloodshed and sin, it could feel like this is all so pointless. With all the suffering that God's people endure, with the pain that you daily endure, with the the cancer diagnosis, with the wayward son, with the belittling of you, your name, what remains? What can withstand the fiery purge of the Lord? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a day when all there is, is God's magnificent glory. And the knowledge of it thereof. The wicked's deeds will be exposed. How God was glorified in your pain will be made clear. And it won't be some minor, obscure amount It will not only fill a city, it will fill the earth. And not only in height and in width, but in depth, it will fill it as the waters cover the sea. All that to say, it is this incomprehensible amount that is God's glory. That he is manifesting even in the midst, even through, even using our struggle and our pain to have his name magnified. So wrongs will be made right. Glory will be shown. What do I do now? I believe. I wait. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, the call to faith is one that feels sometimes so impossible. God, we see the things going on around us calling us to trust you. How easy it is to want to respond in complaint, in a level of frustration which is sinful. God, we need your spirit to work that faith in us. We pray for it, we ask for it, Lord. Expose our lack of faith. Lay it down there on the mat. Give us a heart of repentance. But that we might turn to you for your glory, Lord. Lord, we look forward to that day when faith will be sight. May that day come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.